0: Uh, do you want to invite you in to all that uh, Christian and Haley talked about into our church, uh, And so we're really excited to meet you after service at the seven-minute hangout. Question for you. What are you dreaming about these days? Summertime's coming up. What are you dreaming about? I'm, I'm dreaming about a vacation. We're going on vacation to go camping uh, in July. Uh, anyone dreaming about vacation? Are you dreaming about a project at your house? Uh, maybe not. Some of you, some of you are dreaming about weddings. I see some faces back there like, yeah, some people are getting married. Um, I was uh, working on my house one time, trying to put a new floor in, and we took these hammers and a chisel, and we started just digging up the, the, the cupboards, digging up the floor. Anyone done like a big demo on your house before? You know how satisfying it is to like begin to like, you know, hit, the, hit everything, break down the old, bring in the new. You start dreaming about that kind of stuff. Well, I want you to start dreaming about what your dream would be or what God's dream would be to you for this church. It's really important as we enter into this building season as a church, when we go to two services in the fall, we want to be dreaming about the church, the community that God's put us into. That might seem a little strange. Like, I have never dreamt about a church before. I've never dreamt about what God could do in my life in my church. Uh, Maybe it's because you're new to church, it's like the first time and you're like, okay, I thought I just kind of passively stood here or sat here and someone told me what to think and, and, and do and, and I'm being invited into something. Yes, you are being invited into something. I want to invite you into the dream that we have when we planned this church 15 months ago. And you're part of that. And so the question this morning that we want to look at is, you know, what's the dream God could be, might be, stirring in us as a church and what role would you play? And so we're in a series right now called Control Freak. I always want to say out of control. That was my idea. Um, Got shot down because I'm not in control. Um, And the series is all about these four characters from the Bible who are in circumstances out of their control and how they respond to God in those out of control circumstances. So last week we looked at Habakkuk. Remember that? Habakkuk. Never read the book before. Read it this week, right? Like love the book. Amazing. So if you took a look at it this past week for your study, well done. If you didn't uh, uh, hear the message last week, you can go on the podcast and listen to it. But when God's plans don't work out, what do we do? We, remember from last week, praise God through it. We praise God through plans that don't work out. When life's out of control, we praise God through his plans. This week, we go at the very back end of of the exile period, and we look at a character named Nehemiah. So Habakkuk was the very beginning of exile for Israel. Nehemiah is the very end. And next two weeks after this, we'll get to the middle of two characters, Esther, and the last one is Daniel. There we go. And so this week, we're looking at Nehemiah. So have your Bibles turned to Nehemiah chapter 1. And we are joined this morning uh, by a special guest teacher, my good friend, Jonathan Reader. Jonathan and I and his wife, Michelle, have been friends for over 15 years. Uh, We have served together in a variety of ways, uh, in life groups, uh, pastoring at your Belinda. But the best part of why uh, we felt God invite him this morning to, to share God's word is because Jonathan was on the original launch team, the staff team, to launch our Friends Church Orange Campus. And now Orange Campus is in year 10. And so Jonathan is perfectly positioned to be able to speak to us about what it means to build the church. He was there when Orange launched and they had no one in the room. And then he was there when the, or- when, when the services began and got momentum and people started you know, coming and their lives were changed and the gospel impacted people's lives, he saw it. And he was there when the room began to fill up with people who needed God. And so he's just got an incredible story to share of seeing God's faithfulness uh, through his church as an associate pastor there. And we're really excited to have him share from Nehemiah with us. So let's welcome Jonathan to the stage as he teaches God's word. Aaron. Thank you, guys. Good morning, good
1: morning. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. I've been wanting to get out here for 15 months, uh, and today's my day. So when Aaron was like, hey, do you want to preach? I was like, yes yes, I want to preach. I want to come and hang out with you guys. Um, So he already gave kind of the intro of how we know each other 15 years. Yeah, we were in a life group. This was before kids. You know, things were a lot more chill there. And then we had kids, and things got a little crazy. And we launched a campus down in Orange. And yeah, I've been a part of that for for a while. Um, I want to show you really fast. This is a picture of of my wife and our first child, Henry. This was 10 years ago at a Christmas service at our our French Church Orange campus. Uh, That's us. We look the same. Our kids, not so much. So this is the next picture. This is us currently. I believe this was uh, Mother's Day or Easter. Uh, I've got two boys, Henry and Arthur. um, And it's so funny to see 10 years, right? Like what God does over 10 years, how our families grow, how we change or don't change, hopefully not too much. Some of us change, some of us not so much. So that's us. I'll get to our story, as Aaron said, a little bit later on um, in this. But today as we're continuing our Control Freak series and he's talking about dreams and visions, have you guys ever had like a bucket list thing you're just like, I have to do this one thing, whatever it is. Uh, there's lots of things that I've, I've had to do, but one of the things is, I have a, a very famous, uh, favorite soccer team called Arsenal Football Club. I don't know if any of you follow the Premier League in here. I'm guessing not, because I didn't hear any whoops. Okay, yeah, boo. <laughs> I saw some boos. Okay, we'll talk later. I know who you're rooting for. <laughs> Uh, But one of my bucket list things as I started following Arsenal, they play in London, by the way, so they're not like a local team, you know, and they play in London, and so one of my bucket list things was to get to London to get to the Emirates Stadium, which is like the stadium that they play in, and I had an opportunity five years ago to actually go to the stadium. I got to the Emirates Stadium, and it was amazing. I actually went with Aaron. Aaron and I went to London together for an Alpha Conference, uh, and as we were there, I had this opportunity. This is me at the Emirates, and you can see just, this is the sheer glee on my face, like, There's not a lot of things that get me that excited. I just, if you know me well, it's like, I don't get that excited about most things, but for some reason, Arsenal Football Club, I was like, I've gotta get to the stadium, and I made it to the stadium. I invited Aaron to go, and he was like, nah, you know, I gotta go to a museum or something. I don't know. (laughs) He didn't wanna go with me, so I hopped on the tube all by myself. I made it up there, uh, and it was like, literally, this might be sacrilegious in church, but it was like a religious experience. If you've ever been, if you're like a baseball fan, like going to like Fenway Park or something, it's like there's something magical about being in these historical places. You're like, this is where it all happens. And that was a dream of mine. That was a bucket list thing that I was like, man, I could not wait to get there. But the thing is, it was kind of a selfish bucket list thing, right? There was no good that came from that other than the fact that I felt good about it. I was like, oh, that was fun. That was good. But it wasn't a life-changing event. It wasn't something that I was like, God, put this on my heart to do. It was just something that I was like, I want to do this thing, right? We all have those things. But then we also have those things that are tied to our hearts. They're tied to the world. It's tied to God actually wanting to use us to do something in the world, a passion, a conviction. And the word that I've been thinking about this week as I've been thinking about this message is the word compelled. And we actually find this word in our mission statement as a church. We are becoming a community of authentic Christ followers who are compelled to change our world. And that word compelled is so important. That's what we're going to land on today, that there's a compelling mission and a compelling vision that God gives each and every one of us to do something in this world. And then he gives it to us collectively. Because when we collectively come together as a, as a community, we will see incredible things happen. And that's why we have that word compelled. It's not just this idea that like we want to be good Christians. No, we're compelled to do something about it. We're compelled to go into the world. And today, we're going to be looking at another man named Nehemiah who had this same conviction. He had a compelling thing that happened, and he said, I have to. I cannot stop this. I have to move forward, and I have to engage. And we see a man and a community that were compelled to change their world. So as Aaron said, we're in this series, Control Freak. We're looking through the exile and, and where we land. And as you guys are in Nehemiah, we're at the end now of the exile. So the beginning, Habakkuk was like, get ready, exile's coming. And now at the end, exile has happened, and many people have gone back to Israel already. So where we find Nehemiah, there have already been a couple of waves of people heading back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, after 70 years of being in exile. There was an act, a man named Ezra went back, and he established the temple, worship of God in Jerusalem again. Then there was uh, Ezra again, he finds the law, he finds God's word again, and he's like, the Bible, you guys, we haven't seen this in forever, and they read it out loud together. And now we find a man named Nehemiah, and he's still in Babylon when we first find him. So we're going to pick up Nehemiah 1, chapter 1, verse 1, right in the beginning. Always a great place to start. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, well, those who survived the exile, they're back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. First thing we see is that Nehemiah is a man who is in this position of power, or at least power adjacent. We find that he's in the citadel of Susa, which is like the the very center of the Persian empire of this time. So if he's in the citadel, it means he's close to the powers, right? He's close to the people that are making the decisions, people that can do some things. So we see he's there, and then he gets this report from his fellows who have already gone back to Israel, and they've already been been already building and, and making sure everything is okay. And he gets this report that things are in disrepair. They're broken down again. And Nehemiah, he immediately has this response where he sits down, he weeps, He mourns, he fasts, and then he prays. He has this this intense response because he has a passion and a deep connection to God's people and to God's city, right? He loves God's people, he loves God's city. He doesn't wanna see God's city in disrepair. And he mourns their situation. And as I was reading that, I had to ask myself, is there anything in my life that makes me react like that? And maybe the question for you is, is there anything in your life that makes you react that way? That when you see something, you can't help but mourn and pray and take it to God and say, God, surely there has to be something that you can do, God. And if today you're saying, I've got nothing, nothing's coming to mind, then that's okay too. Because what Aaron said in the beginning, this is an invitation. Maybe God has something for you today. Maybe there's something for you that, that he wants to give you today. Some sort of passion, desire, dream, compelling something that's gonna move you. For me, when I, when I was talking to God this week, I just said, God, show me what breaks your heart. And there were quite a few things that came to mind, but, but one of the things that came to my mind was division in the church. That's something that just breaks my heart. It makes me mourn. It makes me cry. Because God's people disunified, the effect of that in this world, we're seeing it all over the place. Where there's division, when there's not unity, when, fighting, when there is fighting, when the Christians out in our world are worse than the non-Christians out in the world, that breaks my heart. And I mourn about it, and I pray to God, just like Nehemiah. And I know for you, there's things. There's a reason why you're here right now, because you believe that God has something, that there's something in you that says, there's more that I can engage in. Something that's maybe stirring up your justice meter, you know, like, like justice and ju- You're like, ooh, things are getting heated. Like, I need to do something about this. And when you feel this, it's an opening to examine both yourself. Okay, God, what do you want from me? And it's an opening, an invitation to say, okay, now what do you want me to do about it? What do you want from me, and what do you want me to do about it? For Nehemiah, the first thing he does is he takes it to God. So we look at verse 7, right? In verse 7, he prays to the Lord, and this is his prayer, part of it. He says, we have acted very wickedly towards you. Interesting, he goes to repentance there. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant he goes back again to, to that, that phrase, we have acted very wickedly towards you. And he's starting with confession. He's saying, God, we have failed you in some way. God, we have, we have messed up. God, we have not made your name great. And this interesting thing about this is that as you look at this, the story, I, initially when I read these words about Nehemiah and what happened in Jerusalem, I just thought, oh man, like they must have been under attack, right? There must have been something that happened and that's unfortunate for them. And so Nehemiah is sad that they were under attack. But I think what was making Nehemiah mourn was the why. Not just the fact that God's city was broken, but the why. Why was God's city broken down? And the clue is back with this phrase, back in verse four, say the trouble and disgrace. He said God's people were in trouble and they were in disgrace. And that's back in verse four, I believe. As he says disgrace, it kind of, it denotes this idea of they're not just sad, they were actually have been disgraced. It means something, somehow, God might be punishing the Israelites for what they've done. You see, the whole reason why they were in exile in the first place was because they had said, we're not going to follow God's laws. We're going we're to be just like the other people, and we're going to do what we want. We're going to celebrate idols. We're going to go other other gods. And God says, fine, I'm going to put you in exile. And now when they go back, they, all of a sudden, they're, they're going back. They establish the temple. They establish the worship of God, and then they go back to their old ways again. Right? They had a whole new opportunity. God gave them a new chance, and yet they go back to their old ways. They say, you know what? It's a lot easier if we just go along with what's around us. And so Nehemiah's morning, his prayer starts with repentance because he says, God, we have clearly missed the mark again. He repents for the entire nation. You see, repentance is always at the heart of a new move of God. Always. If you want to see God move in your city, if you want to see God move in your world, move in your church, it starts with repentance. God, where is my heart in this? When we don't recognize our part in our distance or our dullness from God, we're never going to be able to experience the more that God has for us. It starts with this. It's like in a relationship. Think about if you're in a relationship even with friends. There's an opportunity for you to say, "You know what? It's not just a one-way street here. Like I have to own my stuff." If I don't own my stuff, I'm not going to be in a healthy relationship, right? Same with God. If we want God to move, if we want to be in a relationship with him, we have to acknowledge the distance that maybe we've created between us and God. And when we do, we're going to be able to see God moves in new ways. New moves of God can come. And Nehemiah shows us that repentance, it begins with confession, but then it continues with obedience, I love that because it's not just, oh, God, I'm sorry, and I'm just going to go back to my old ways. That's what the Israelites tried to do over and over. God, we're sorry. He says, okay, I forgive you, and then they're back to the old ways again. But true repentance is recognizing and saying, I'm sorry, and then it's walking in obedience, walking forward. And Nehemiah, he shows us how to do this. He says, I'm going to confess for the people, and then we're going to do something. We're going to walk forward in obedience. But before we get to that, in verse 9, Nehemiah moves from repentance and he moves into appealing to God's character. He actually goes to God and says, God, remember. Verse 9, he's actually reminding God of the words that God gave to the Israelites. So he's quoting God here. He says, this is God's words then. Verse nine, but if you return to me, that is God, and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah says, God, do you remember your words to us? Do you remember your promise, God? You promised us that you would bring us out of exile. You promised us that you would prosper us and you would bless us again. You promised us, God, but you're not doing it just for us. You're doing it for your name's sake. That's what he says. He says, you will do it for your name's sake. Ultimately, as Nehemiah comes to God, he says, God, I'm putting my trust back in you. I'm trusting that your word is what you say it is, that your promises will never fail. I'm trusting you, God. And it's interesting because it goes back to the theme of last week. Really the whole theme of this this whole series is, who are we trusting? Are we trusting ourselves? Or are we trusting God? God. For Nehemiah, he says, I'm trusting God, that God, you're going to come through. In the midst of impossible things, in the midst of crushing despair, in the midst of seeing your city destroyed, God, I am going to trust in you because this is your city. These are your people. This is your mission, God. And so he goes to God's character and he says, I trust in you. Then after he says, I trust, then he moves on to actually a plan. Verse 11, the very end of verse 11b, he says, give your servant, this is now Nehemiah talking again in this prayer, give your servant God success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now it's interesting because as you're reading this whole thing, there's no mention of any man that he's talking about. We don't really know exactly how Nehemiah is gonna do this. We just see his prayer right here. Give us, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I'll give you a clue. The man is the king of Persia. We're gonna see that later on, but I don't know why he puts it at the end here because right after that, the clue, at the very end of verse 11, he ends with, I was the cupbearer to who? To the king. I don't know why Nehemiah didn't say at the very beginning, hey, I'm Nehemiah, I'm a cupbearer to the king, by the way. He just, he leaves that for the very end to kind of keep us guessing. But if we know that he's the cupbearer, that means he's in a position of power or at least of influence, he's near the king. The cupbearer was the one who would literally take the cup, they'd taste it, make sure it wasn't poisoned, right? And then they'd hand it to the king. So he's literally like within a hand's reach of the king. He has position. He's in a spot where it's like, okay, God, could I do something about this with the king? He saw a need and he felt conviction. And then he used his influence, but as he was doing it, he was fully relying on God the whole time. You see, Nehemiah was gonna have one shot. I, didn't, I don't get the sense that he was constantly going before the king. I felt like this was kind of a one and done, like if he messes up, he could be killed, right? But just like Hamilton in our favorite musical, he's not throwing away his shot. He's not going to throw it away. He's like, I got my one shot right now. And so, chapter two, we see that he goes in front of the king and he says to the king some words. But as he shows up, he comes with a sadness, right? He's still in mourning. He literally has been fasting. He's probably just looking just like so beat up. And the king actually asks him, Nehemiah, what's up with you? Why do you look like this? And in chapter three, or in verse three of chapter two, Nehemiah says this. Actually, right before that, he says, I was very much afraid, which makes sense because he's going before the king of Persia who could just kill him in an instant. I was very much afraid, but, verse three, I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it that you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven, And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Nehemiah just goes for it. I love his boldness. He's like, I was really afraid. And then I said, hey, king, here's what I really need. And the amazing thing, going back uh, to verse four there, he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven, right? I prayed to the God of heaven. I want to ask you, because I had to ask myself this, this question, when there's things in front of you that you want to go after, how often do you actually pray, stop and pray to God and say, God, would you give me favor in this? If you're anything like me, I often go after things and then afterwards I'm like, oh God, were you in that? God, did you, could you do that thing? Or sometimes I look at, at things that are way bigger than myself and instead of going to God, I just say, it's hopeless. It's never going to happen. I don't think it can work. Because I'm thinking that it's on me, that I'm somehow in control. That if I can't do it, then it must not be able to be accomplished. Nehemiah knew that. He's like, that has nothing to do with it. He's like, it's all about God and what God can accomplish through me. But I have to take that step. I have to be bold. And he was bold and he asked. And the amazing thing is that God came through for him. God came through. Immediately, the king was like, great, what do you want? What can I do for you? And he sends Nehemiah back to Israel. He says, great, you can go back. And in fact, he says, I'll give you some resources. You can have letters that are signed for me so that everyone knows that you're coming from the king. And I'm also gonna send like a small army with you just in case you need it. Like there's not, in the passage, there's nothing that tells us that he should have gotten what he got from the king. It's not like Nehemiah was the son of the king or was a high official. He was a cupbearer. And yet the king saw something and God gave him the favor to give to Nehemiah and he walks forward. And so Nehemiah, he actually gets to go back to Jerusalem now and he brings all these people with him and they go and the first thing he does is he walks around the city walls to see the destruction, to see what is going on. And as he walks around, he sees it all and he's like, oh my gosh, this is just as bad as they said. It's actually even worse than they said. So he calls everyone together from the, from the Israelites that were there. He calls them together and in verse 17, this is what he says. Then I said to, said to them, you see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem, it lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start building. So they began this good work. Immediately, they got to work. Nehemiah's like, we can't just sit around anymore and be sad about this. He's like, we've got to do something about it. We have the favor of God on our side. Let's move forward. It's time to get to work. Now, there were people around the Israelites, people around Jerusalem from the different tribes and different nations that were around them. How do you think they felt about this? Seeing the Israelites be like, oh, Jerusalem's gonna come back into power. Israelites back in power again. Yeah, that went really well for all the people around Israel. Not so much. They hated it. They came out against them. They said they were ridiculing them. They were mocking them. They were threatening them. And the next few chapters of the Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a 13 chapter book, but in the next few chapters talks about the different opposition that they faced, the different people that came against them that were literally mocking them. Were like, "Ha! you think you can do that? You're crazy. Wait, who do you guys think you are? Why are you doing this? You're not gonna do this. We're gonna come against you. And they began to actually threaten them, say physically, we're gonna come against you, raise up our armies, and we're gonna stop this work that you wanna get started. See, when God's people are unified on accomplishing a mission and accomplishing God's work, there will always be opposition. Always. Because the enemy doesn't want to see God's kingdom succeed in any way, shape, or form. There's always going to be opposition. But we see that the mission has to be greater than the opposition. Always. You see, if, if you have a mission, many of you have maybe started a project, like Aaron was talking about home projects. You start it, and you're like, "This is going to be great," and then it becomes harder and harder and harder. And at some point, you're like, "Maybe I should just give up. Maybe we'll just... It was better the way it was, you know? Well, let's, I like that hole in that wall. Let's just keep it, you know? Like this is just too much work now. That's what it means. The mission has to be greater than the opposition, because there's always going to be opposition. And if we don't believe that in our hearts, if you guys here, if you don't believe that there's going to be opposition to what God's doing here at friends, you're never gonna see it through. And yet you have to remember, there's always gonna be opposition and the mission that God has put us on has to be greater, has to be stronger, has to be more powerful, has to be somewhere centered inside of us. It's gotta be greater than the opposition. See, when you step up or you raise your hand or you engage a hurting world, the enemy's gonna come after you in some way, shape or form. And I don't mean that as like a scare tactic. I, I mean like, that's why you gotta know what you're about. That's why you've gotta have people around you, people that you're linking arms with and saying, we are doing this together because on our own, we're done. But as a community that's compelled to change our world, we can do so much more together than we can on our own. When we're compelled by injustice, by the needs in the world, by the hurting around us, and we link our arms together to impact God's kingdom, we can do amazing things. Nehemiah and the people of Israel did amazing things. In fact, they knew there, there was opposition. Nehemiah, at one point, he says, you know what, there's so many people that are gonna come against us, they could, they could literally show up at any time. He said, strap a sword to your side. Just everyone, put a sword on, okay? Now you can work with a sword, and you can work like this, and you're ready to go. You've got one eye on the enemy, but you've got one eye on the mission, and the mission does not stop. Sure, yeah, there's opposition, but the mission doesn't stop. We're gonna continue on. The mission is greater than the opposition, and what's amazing is that the Israelites and Nehemiah were able to accomplish this work in a miraculous 52 days. We're talking thousands of feet of broken down walls and burned, uh, burned, burned um, gates, and and just this this destruction that has come on the city. 52 days. That's incredible. I wish I had a map of Israel. I didn't. I didn't look one up. But like just how big Jerusalem was, like all the things that they had to do. They, that shouldn't have been possible, and yet with God, it was possible. And the thing is, though, it wasn't just about the restored walls. God also used Nehemiah to restore the people. Because in the midst of all this, as they're building, as they're they're doing all this, God also calls Nehemiah to call out injustice. He actually goes to the Israelites, he says, you guys have been abusing each other. You need to stop it now. You guys have been taking advantage of each other. No more. You guys, you owe people money, give them the money. You're holding people uh, against their will, stop it. And the people rose up because they knew that the mission was greater than anything that they could have been about. Because he said, it's not just about God's work outside in in the city. If the city is rebuilt, but the people inside are not, God's still not gonna be glorified. In fact, you're gonna be more of a mockery than ever. Look, they have this amazing city, and yet the people are still just as terrible. The people don't care about the world around them. Can you guys resonate with that? Being parts of churches or places where you're like, this place is really cool. Like, look at this building, it's awesome. But what if the people inside the building aren't? What if we're not allowing God to rebuild us internally? Yeah, we can build outside, but God's name is never gonna be glorified if we're not together, unified, compelled around a mission. So Nehemiah knew what it was like to be out of control. He had this massive vision. But the good news, the best news for Nehemiah and the best news for us is that rebuilding, it requires a God-sized vision and uh, God-given capacity. God-sized vision and God-given capacity. Meaning if you have something in your life that feels too big, that's right where you need to be. If you feel compelled to do something, you're like, I am way too scared of this. Maybe that's an invitation for God-sized vision and God-given capacity. Because Nehemiah, he was able to walk in faith knowing that God was gonna do it even though it was way bigger than what he thought he could handle. And the thing is, God has called you and God has called me to be rebuilders of broken things. It's literally part of our calling. We know this because that's the work that Jesus was in. Jesus was called to rebuild broken things, to find the lost, to be about rebuilding lives. And if Jesus was called to that, then we as Christians, those of us who've identified with Christ, we are called to the exact same thing: to rebuild people's lives, to get our hands dirty. To not just sit back and be like, oh, we have it really nice, and this is, this is nice and clean, but to actually engage in a hurting world in some way. We are called to that. And it's something that's, that's beyond just being called to, okay, let's just read our Bibles and pray and do our good religious duties. No, we are called to action. When we were uh, launching our, our Orange Campus, one of the, the passages that we, we went to constantly and used... Um, for many years was Isaiah 58. And I'm gonna read this, it's a little bit long, but I just want you to get this idea of what does it look like to put your faith into action, to feel compelled to change a world. Isaiah 58, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing fingers... And malicious talk. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Jump to verse 12. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairers of broken walls, restorers of streets with dwellings. This is what God was promising the Israelites. This wasn't just like, oh, do these this is actually prophecy to them. Nehemiah would have known this because Jeremiah, or, uh, Isaiah wrote this many years before the exile. Knowing what was going to happen, God's punishment was coming against the Israelites. They were going to go into exile. And yet, Isaiah said, if you turn your hearts towards God, towards the things of God, towards things like freeing the wrongly impressed, lightening the burden of workers, removing chains, sharing food with the hungry, sheltering the homeless, clothing those who need it, helping your relatives, removing the yoke of oppression, then you will see the work of the Lord. Then... God will show up. Then he will restore your strength. Then he will guide you. Then you will be known as repairers of broken walls. Nehemiah has said to his people, he said, we know what God has promised us. We know what God has called us to. So let's be about it because the Lord is with us. When we turn our hearts towards the things of God, that's when we begin to see God use us in amazing ways. God gives us these amazing things. And oftentimes, though, to go back to what we said, rebuilding, it requires this God-sized vision, right? We've got to have the vision for what God wants, and it requires God-given capacity. It's out of my control. I can't do this on my own. Staying in your safe bubble, though, on the other hand, is a surefire way to miss out, to lose out on the ministry that God has for you. If you want to be compelled to change the world, you've got to shake it up a bit you have to be willing to get uncomfortable. And I'm not saying this to you, like shame on you, I'm saying this to myself. Because my natural inclination is to take it easy, guys. I like the easy life. I live up in your Belinda. it's literally called the land of gracious living. And I'm like, I like that, you know? It's a pretty sweet place. And yet God says that's not what your life is about. Your life isn't about comfort, your, God, your life isn't about stability, your life is about actually changing the world, engaging in the hurt around you. And I have to intentionally sometimes step out, put myself in these situations where I'm out of my comfort zone. A few years ago, uh, we had, well, 10 years ago now, we had this opportunity to launch our Orange Campus. And there have been many times in my life when I've put myself out there, I've gone on missions trips, or I've just said, I'm just going to serve, you know, locally, or I'm going to serve our homeless ministries or different things, or I'm going to give my time or my my tears or my sweat or my blood or whatever. I'm going to give. But I got to tell you, the biggest thing was 10 years ago when we launched our Orange Campus was the biggest ask that I felt like God has ever given to me because I was working at our Yorba and Friends campus at the time, if you haven't been out there, it's a lovely campus, I love it, everything's nice. There's a coffee shop there, you know? It's like, come on. And I felt God saying, no, you're gonna go to Orange. There's no church there. We said, okay. So my wife and I, we prayed about it. We said, okay, let's be a part of this. And as we went to Orange, we noticed that it was not gonna be easy. We ended up renting a space on Sunday nights from another church. I don't know uh, how many of you have done the Sunday night churches, how many of you have done that with a six-month-old? It was terrible. I mean, Michelle could be the one to tell you, like, getting our kids there, getting, getting getting ready, having young families even wanting to stay. Like, it was the worst time ever. We were right in the middle of the orange circle, too, so it was, like, busy, and there was no parking. We would literally have people just wandering through our, the middle of our road. So we would have a building here where our worship center was, then we had a parking lot, which was open to, like, the public, and then we had a kid's space completely on the other side. We would just have people wandering through, you know, just people just, like, okay, hey, what are you guys doing? You oh, know, church, great. They try to get into our kids' space. We had to be like, no, you can't come in here. You know, like, this is not for you. We had to just fight, no parking, terrible night services. We were like, what is happening? But we knew that God was like, no, this is what I have for you. Because we cared so much more about the mission than we did about the opposition. People would come against us. they would literally be like, you're not going to succeed. This isn't going to work. What are you thinking you guys are doing? What, you're trying to be in Orange? Do you know how many ser- churches have been in Orange and like, aren't doing so great? You want to be a part of this place? Are you sure? And we, threw it, we went through that, that really hard first couple we, couple years. And then we moved buildings. And then we were like, great, now Sunday mornings, this is going to be awesome. But Sunday mornings, we ended up in a packing house. Uh, we were doing baptisms in the, I got a couple pictures here. We're doing baptisms, you know, this was our old building. Baptisms in the parking lot because we couldn't do it inside. So baptisms in the parking lot. We got into this, this new building. It was literally just floors like this, the whole building. Let's go through the, the next couple pictures here. This was the space. It's really cool, by the way. But holes in the floor, we literally, one of our construction workers like fell through the floor to like almost the basement level. Like there, it was not safe, you guys. (laughs) We did our first Easter service in there. We had to bring in all of that work. In fact, Taylor, who's the guy who's uh, doing sound here today, Taylor was a part of this work. He literally helped us cart in all of this stuff and set it up. Like every week we started doing that. It's like, oh man, again, cool vibe, but so much work. So much work. And as we began to to work towards these things, we began to to see that this maybe wasn't the, the easiest thing that we could have gotten ourselves into, right? There could have surely been another place that I could have gone. I could have gotten a different job, gone somewhere else. But I knew that God had called us to orange for a reason. And now 10 years later, we are seeing the fruit of all of that hard work and labor. We're seeing things like, we're at three services right now and like we're bursting at the seams and we're like, how are all these people still coming? Like why are they still here? Like we still make it incredibly hard on them to park. There's no parking in the city of Orange if you've ever been there. It's terrible. You gotta walk super far. You like don't know where you're going. Our kids space, when we first launched in that building, our kids space was literally in the gym next door. We had a gym that that is right next to us. We shared a wall. So we just opened up a door and we're like, here kids, you go in here. We just gated it off. CrossFit gym. There's people literally working out in there and we're like mopping up their sweat so that our kids can learn about Jesus. That's what we were dealing with at first. We're like, okay, that's great. And then we get downstairs, we got a, a kid's space. And as we've gone and gone and gone we've said to ourselves why are we doing this? Why? There could be so many easier things you could do. But we're doing it because God has called us to the city of Orange, to that area specifically, to care for the helpless, to care for foster kids. We offer these things called now, this thing called now the youth centers of Orange where we have free after school care for any kids that want to from the Orange Unified School District because that's helping parents. It's helping kids stay off the streets. It's helping them have a hope and a future. And we say, we're gonna be about these things. And yet that's now 10 years down the road. Going to the beginning of our, of our story, that's where it was hard. It's hard in a different way now, but that's when it was hard. And I think about you guys, and as I was, I was thinking about this message today, I was thinking about all the people that it took to get us to where we are now. I think about my friend Kylie, who helped us launch our children's ministry. She gave countless hours and dedication, literally swinging those hammers with us, putting things together, caring for kids in a gym. Now Kylie runs our our, uh, Hub Resource Center, which is a homeless outreach ministry that we have in the city of Orange. She's running that whole thing herself. She's incredible. I think of our tech people who had to literally drive trailers and carts every single week to show up just to do what we had to do every single week to be there. I think about my Alpha Core leaders when we began to think, hey, we want to do something for the city. We want to get outside of ourselves. They were praying with me. They were with me in it all. I think about the effort that they had to put in just to see two people show up to our Alpha nights and be like, really? This is all that God wants to do, right? Two people? I think about the, the core team that went with us, many people who, who said, you know what? This isn't us. We're not ready for this anymore. And they've left. I think about all the people that we've lost in this process. But ultimately, I think about what God has done over the past 10 years at Orange. And it gives me hope for you guys. Just imagine what Friends here in the Inland Empire is gonna look like in 10 years time. Because God's given you a vision for this place. He's given you a vision for these cities around you. He wants you to build communities. And building takes work. It takes vision. It takes leadership and it takes every single one of you in some way saying, okay God, we're gonna do this. What an opportunity that you have for this city. As we close today, I just, I want you to think about two areas of rebuilding. Two things that I've talked about. The first is, how are you rebuilding yourself? The second is, how are you rebuilding your world? See, Jesus called us to be world changers, but he also said, I want to renovate your heart so that you can renovate the world around you. So maybe for you today, you're looking and you're saying, I need to rebuild some things in my own life. I actually need God to do some renovating work inside of me because I'm not ready for anything scary. I'm not ready for anything big. I'm not ready to be out of my comfort zone. How are you rebuilding yourself? And the second is, how are you rebuilding your world? How does God want you to take a next step? And as we close with this last song, this is a perfect opportunity to just ask God, God, what are you gonna do? What do you wanna do in me? And what do you wanna do through me? So if you guys would just close your eyes, bow your heads, and we close in prayer here. Jesus